Once again, we're all witnessing the inner struggles of our nation. We seek to understand what lies at the very heart of these struggles. In today's episode, Ishmael helps us consider the impact of two competing visions of race. This is Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. Welcome all of you to this new episode of Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. As I speak to you, our nation is struggling. Our nation is struggling right now with episodes of racial antagonism, episodes of injustice. We will be discussing those episodes next week because I think that it's necessary, it is important not to react when emotions are at their height. But today we will address a related but very foundational issue concerning what is at the very heart of the struggles of our nation. Our discussion today is not going to be primarily about race as a social construct or race as a biological reality. Our discussion is instead about two competing visions of race in America, the competing visions that are again at the heart of our struggles. However, let us briefly touch the question of race in history. Unlike species, race seems to be like a fuzzy category, lacking clear biological classification. Race as a biological rank seems something very subjective, and yet it is something with which we struggle every day. So race do not represent a genuine break in nature, but is part of a continuum with arbitrary boundaries. In other words, we don't seem to understand race the way we understand other categories that science uses to divide the natural order. And yet, race is very important. Some things happened starting in the 17th century that gave us the modern concept of race. That concept that we find to be fuzzy, subjective, but so important in our lives today. Let's explore these events. The first one we can discuss is what we call Western exploration. The discovery and colonization of cultures. Cultures came closer and differences between people and between cultures became readily apparent. The second thing that happened is what we call the popularization of Darwinism and later the theory of social Darwinism. So we have the exploration, colonization of new cultures, cultures come closer, and in Europe, a new scientific idea, Darwinism, that gave way later to what is called social Darwinism. Darwinists are the first ones to give to racism some semblance of scientific validity. It is interesting that the subtitle of the origin of the species was the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. So the ideas of racism begin to develop out of the apparent difference between cultures, trying to understand these differences, and the development of certain scientific theories in Europe. 
With these influences and the human propensity to parochialism, it was to be expected that people ask certain questions. For example, why are these people so different than us? Why these people seem to have inferior cultures? Why are they so different? The Darwinist insistence on a hierarchy of survival, if we ask the question of who will be placed at the top in the hierarchy, who do you think we're going to place? We're going to place ourselves. We understand ourselves as being superior than those people who look inferior and so different. So classification came with a vengeance. But in short, race seems to be a social construct that uses certain true biological differences. This is very important. The differences are real, but the construct itself is a social construct that utilizes these seemingly irrelevant differences. These differences tend to be very visual. We can see the color of skin. We can see the coarseness of the hair, the shape of the nose. These differences were very apparent, very clear to the eye, and it was easy to construct something ar around them. The reality is that every time you marry someone, you are marrying a constellation of genetic difference. The thing is that most of those differences are not visual. They exist, but we don't see them. But with race, we begin to see these differences and build around those differences another difference, a cultural difference that ranks people in this hierarchy of survival. Think about it. Age of explorations, mercantilism, trade, Darwinism. All this gave a new twist of justification to an ancient institution, the institution of slavery. Let's take mercantilism. Mercantilism was an economic system based on the accumulation of precious stones and other resources. And slavery has existed for a long time. And suddenly you bring to the mixture this classification of people based on their rather apparent uh, racial differences or physical differences. We see how all these influences are coming together to create a, an explosive situation in the world. As we know, slavery is ancient and universal. Hunter-gatherers in North America practice it. The Cherokees practice it. In South America, we have a very interesting case the case of the Tupi Mambas, who practice ritualistic slavery. Interestingly, the case of the Tupi Mambas, as other cases around the world, are important to understand things that affect us today. So that's why we are going to dedicate some time to discuss the Tupi Mambas. After all, freedom was a peculiarly Western value and ideal, and the case of the Tupi Mambas reflect this. People resisted it everywhere but in the West. They resisted its gestation and institutionalization. What needs explanation in the world is the West and its conception of freedom. Again, individual freedom as we understand it today. 
is a Western invention that did not take hold outside of the West. In no pre-modern society apart from the West was personal freedom given a serious consideration. The slave was a dead man, and it was sociologically impossible for himself to conceive the principle or the status of aloneness, of individual life, of particularity of your existence apart from a group. Freedom is something that we take for granted, individual freedom, but in reality is something modern and something new, and again, something that non-Western people had no conception of. What, what slaves actually conceived or dreamed about was more practical, to become again a legitimate member of society, to be socially born again, preferably by escaping and returning back to their previous community, but even by eventually becoming accepted by the community that enslaved them. At times, it was just not, in, not possible to return to your previous community, and if too long of a time passed, not even your community of origin will accept you. So you will try to trade for being accepted within the community that enslaved you as difficult as that was. Of course, the outcome of being a member of a new community was resisted, was the last resort uh, opportunity or, or possibility. And it was also resisted by the native born, the free born within those communities. But however difficult this task was, if it happened, it never meant to become a freeman or even a citizen. Even after integrating into the new community, the former slave remained in some sort of intermediate state of dependency, a dependency to his master and to the community of his master. The transition to truly become free took often a couple of generations. Probably the person who suffered enslavement in the first place will never see that day. Well, maybe, maybe their grandchildren will be fully integrated within the new community. These societies had an obsession with slaves, a ritual preoccupation with the status of slaves within them. The most fascinating case, as I said before, that we have record of is the case of the Tupibambas, a pre-European South American tribe. The Tupimambas occupied the eastern coastal strip of Brazil, and they were in constant war with another tribe, the Tapuya people of Brazil. The Tupimamba were, as one historian puts it, an example of Stone Age affluence. Why is that? Because they had all the food and water they could use and they could need, and the women did all the manor labor. So they, the men were idle, and idle men did two things. They played and they waged war. The main objective of war among the Tupimamba, as with so many other tribes around the world, was the taking of slaves. And having slaves was a sign of wealth 
and prestige within the community, a way to enact also revenge against the enemy. It was a constant reminder that we are not them. We are not these people. These people are considered the enemy within. Captives were considered the enemy within, this destined eventually to ritualistic sacrifice. In fact, the high point of social life among the Tupi Mama was the ritualistic slaughtering and eating of captives. To own a slave was considered a privilege, and they treated their slaves well. The children of slaves also became their property. They were constantly reminded of being inferior and could be slaughtered at the whim of the master. That gave the Tupimamba a sense of identity and made them stronger as a community as they saw the enemy within and they saw that we are not them. Fear and contempt ruled the lives of slaves among the Tupimambas. The main symbol of their status was a rope that they tied around the neck of the slave as a symbolic necklace, strong with beads, as many beads as he had months to live until execution. Imagine yourself having one bead removed from your necklace every month, knowing that you soon will be killed. Rage against the enemy within was the highest virtue among the Tupimamba, and warfare, slavery, religion, and human sacrifice were integral to the Tupimamba culture and showed solidarity within their society and with the ancestors of the society. In the ritualistic exercises, in the ritual, the one incorporated by slavery had to be again segregated by not allowing him in the home of the master. That happened very soon, a few months before his slaughter. He was taken out of the house of the master and allowed to roam around the community. And he was being taunted and he was being insulted constantly. Fear ruled his life. Very close to the day of execution, the slave was taunted and accused And before killing him, he was freed to pretend to escape. He was deliberately allowed to flee and hunted again, recaptured, returned, ritualistically slaughtered and eaten by the Tupimamba. Again, this ritual solidified the unity within the group. There was no aspiration for individual freedom among Eastern people. Slavery, in fact, was integral to the very conception of unity within the clan. However, in Europe, there was another important influence that needs to be mentioned, and that was Christianity. Eventually, the Christian West was the first one to question slavery, and not only question slavery, but to begin a movement to end slavery. That quest had an influence here in America. Here we come closer to our purpose today to talk about theories of race in America. 
our history became embedded with a binary reality. A country birthed on the ideas of freedom still had within itself a racialized institution that in practice contradicted the goals of liberty. Within our society, there was this infection of slavery that was contradictory to the reality of West, the Western understanding of individual freedom. With all of this information in the background, let us move forward to explore the two streams of thought that inform American race problems, as I mentioned earlier. And my hope is to be as objective as I can in presenting both streams, although I will openly tell you which one I support. The first stream I call the natural law integrationist approach, the personalist approach. Let me repeat that. The first stream that has informed race relations in America from the beginning of our nation is what we can call the natural law integrationist approach or the personalist approach. It is important to note that America benefited from the fact that the idea of individual freedom as an institutional value, and I repeat, it took hold only in the Christian West. As Orlando Patterson says, while the idea of freedom was certainly engendered wherever slavery existed, it never came to term. People everywhere except in the West resisted its gestation and institutionalization. In other words, the slave could conceive freedom, but not as an institutional value. If I was enslaved, I wanted to be free, but I wanted to be free so I could return to my community and come back and enslave the other. There was no opposition to slavery as an institution, only the opposition of me being, <laughs> being the one enslaved. In non-Western societies, the slave dreamed of becoming socially born again by recapturing an acceptable social dependency. Social dependency was the great value. The slave aspired to reduce his marginality not to obtain autonomy. Think about that for a moment again. We value autonomy. We talk about autonomy constantly in this country, sometimes in exaggerated ways, I believe. However, autonomy was not a conception in the minds of the slave in, in non-Western societies. What was important for them was to recapture acceptable social dependency. The slave aspired to reduce marginality. They longed to regain corporate status socially, legally, and ritualistically. The dichotomy of free slave was not apparent in the non-Western world because all status was involuntary and subordinated. But in the West, In the natural law personalist understanding of race, the person, the individual, has a different status. Ethnic identity is seen as an aspect of a larger reality of individual personhood. 
As race is culture, basically, it cannot be considered intrinsic to the reality of the human person as a person. So a collective identity or a collective identifier or a collective aspiration is not the principal aspiration of a person in the West, in the natural law integrationist approach. In the personalist understanding, the human person stands sui generis among or within his group. He does not renounce the group, but belonging to the group is not the highest value. And I repeat, as race is culture, it cannot be considered intrinsic to the reality of the human person as person. In fact, Ethnic or racial differentiation in scripture is found only after the fall. The only two communities that are created before the fall are work, the community of work, and the community of the family. Personalists believe that the founders of our nation were, for the most part, successful in embedding our founding with natural law principles. But what happens? The slaves come to America from all varied tribes in Africa. Sometimes they cannot communicate with each other, but they bring with them this Eastern understanding of what is most, what is the greatest value that was full integration within the group. But they cannot integrate. They cannot even speak with each other. Sometimes the enemy from a different tribe is the one sitting next to him. And the slaves begins to create a new conception of being human. The slave begins to have a different influence in a foreign land, a Western influence. That's what I say that, in my opinion, African Americans are the quintessential Americans, deprived of freedom as they understood it coming from eastern countries, eastern eastern tribes, deprived of what made sense to them. They were trusted into a new reality, into a new context with foreigners, with strangers who had a very different language. They looked different and they also have very different ideas. And the slave began to create a new conception of being themselves, what I call the quintessential American who understood himself or herself in a new way. The personalist approach made an imprint in the very essence of what it meant to be an American coming from Africa. And that was a contribution to the reality of these people in this foreign land. Adherents to this stream believe that this natural law and biblical context and the American constitutional framework over time could overcome social, economic, and political racial stratification. Precisely because the individual matters and not the group. Embedded in those principles was the seed of the answer to the problem, even if such answer required a long and at times painful journey. The slave became socially born again, yes, but this time 
with a different institutional value, the institutional value of freedom, of individual freedom as the matrix of understanding of their new reality in a foreign land. And that is what makes African Americans quintessentially American and what and makes them to have a great new flavor to what it means to be American. No longer African, no longer connected to their tribal ancestral lands, they forged a new and beautiful understanding and reality here in America and the natural law integrationist approach the personalist approach fits well with this new understanding the constitution was not perfect but it was neither tragically flawed its principles its basic principles were not those of white supremacy but the principles of liberty White supremacy as a collective identifier, as a remnant of universal wrongs coming from a collectivized self, was akin to the idea of full integration within the group as the highest value, an idea left behind by the slave who was forging a new identity based on freedom. Yes, white supremacy was a reality on the ground, for the values, the institutional values of the new reality called America call for a new approach, a new understanding. And that is what the natural law integrationist approach tells us. It is possible to integrate because this approach understands America in a new way, in a different way. Booker T. Washington illustrates the natural law integrationist approach when he said that the problem of blacks in America was twofold, racism and black underdevelopment. In other words, yes, the reality on the ground of racial oppression was there. White supremacy as an institutional value was still there in on the ground on the realities of American life. But black underdevelopment was also a problem because that places the person at the center, unique and unrepeatable, made in the image and likeness of God with the moral capacity of self-realization. The person can't take steps to change his life by the choices he makes. In spite of all the antecedent factors, and the difficulties of the reality of the individual person, individual freedom as a value, was key to understand the new reality of blacks in America and this first stream of understanding the racial problem. The problem, again, was twofold. The problem of collectivized identity and the problem of how to actualize individual dignity. The roots of the 1960s civil rights movement were grounded on the belief that black integration was a right, that it was good, and that it was possible. Be true to what you say on paper, yelled and shouted to the world, the civil rights movement. That was the cry 
affirming the values of the founding. Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail is probably the best expression of this view. A law lacks character as true law when it is unjust and violates the moral law. Therefore, it must be disobeyed precisely because it violates the principles of the Constitution, precisely because the individual matters more than the collectivized self, precisely because we adhere to these values that we found in this new land, because we forge a new identity based on that new understanding on how to be human, precisely because that is the case. These unjust laws have to be opposed. The heart of the natural law personalistic integrationist understanding of race in America is optimism. We are optimistic about what is possible within this society that we embrace and made our own. Another important element of this stream of thought is realism and realism about human sin. Yes, this is the reality before us, but our values will be able to conquer that reality because we embrace those values. We embrace ourselves in the flag. We don't kneel before the flag. We embrace ourselves with that flag, and then we shout to you, be true to what you say on paper. In the next episode, we will continue to examine the second understanding of race relations in America and how these two opposing understandings are so crucial to understand the present moment. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. Now, learn more about the Freedom and Virtue Institute by visiting www.fvinstitute.org. Ishmael is also the author of the book, Not Tragically Colored. You can connect with him on the Freedom and Virtue Institute Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a positive review. Thanks. Until next time, stay engaged. I was thinking this was the way to go and you put up your puppet show. I say cheese.